0: Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope, a podcast about business, well-being and chocolate. Hello
1: and welcome to our latest episode of Hope and Patience. It's a treat to have you here. Now you may or may not know that I've a relentless itch to travel and one continent which has a special place in my soul is South America. There's something about its strong, warm, beating heart which just gets you. Thanks to my chocolate days, I visited both Brazil and Colombia. My first trip to Colombia was to Bogota for five days to meet cocoa farmers. Short, but long enough to captivate me and make sure I returned as soon as I could. Securing a commission for the telegraph to explore chocolate along with a splash of sightseeing, I went back and was hooked. Suffice to say, my chocolate range went on to be made from only Colombian couverture. And so the opportunity to spend an episode discovering a different side of Colombia and about a red hot ingredient was an easy one to opt for. Today we're off exploring cannabis, not the psychoactive part, but the non-psychoactive part, CBD, often referred to as the wellness weed. CBD, CBD. Is the new buzzword in the health and well-being arena, and investors are queuing up to put their cash into the cannabis pot. Excuse the pun. Globally, the market is forecast to grow to £50 billion in the next five years, with three companies having recently floated on the London Stock Exchange: MG Pharma, Cannabo, and Cellular Goods. So, to our guest today, the co-founder and CEO of a medicinal cannabis company. They are the first British producer of cannabis oil and isolates whose dedicated growing facility is in the northeast of Colombia, near the Venezuelan border. Having raised in excess of £6 million over the last couple of years and with an impressive board of directors, including Lord Mancroft, former chairman of the Drug and Alcohol Foundation, Nick Davis, founder of Memory Crystal, and Dr. Imbar Maiman-Paramachik, one of the leading experts on medicinal cannabis, their company is on a mission to bring top quality CBD oil to businesses worldwide. Time to introduce our guest, David Kirby, co founder and CEO of Avida Global. Hello and welcome to HP, David.
0: Hi there, Amelia, and uh, thank you very much for having me.
1: I cannot wait for this episode, David, because <laughs> it's, it's just. At Columbia is my big, big thing. And to find out more about CBD is another excitement too. So David, you started your career path in quite a different direction with a degree in music and as a classically trained pianist. Would you be able to share with us a whistle-stop tour of how you ended up immersed in the world of cannabis and co-founder of Avida Global?
0: Yeah, no, sure, Amelia. So a whistle-stop tour is... um, Yeah, no, I um, studied music. Uh, My passion was always jazz, jazz piano. And upon graduating, I played around London for quite a while, played in Ronnie Scott's and all the rest of it. But uh, you suddenly come to a realisation that uh, unless you're the best in the world or the best in the UK, you're you're not going to make a living out of this. You'll have some fun, but you'll be very poor with it. So... I sort of at that point went into the on the graduate milk round and ended up in a IT consultancy business. And that was the start of my early career. I spent then 16 years with a company called Capgemini or what became Capgemini sat on the UK board after many years up the greasy pole. Spent some time with uh, after that with Shell, looking after the global projects, and then decided, this is probably nine years ago now, that I wanted to do something more agile and got involved in the world of venture capitalism in terms of working with startup technology businesses. And it was through that, all our businesses tended to be high-tech, but it was through that that we came across this opportunity for for cannabis. So one of my business partners happened to be married to a lovely Colombian lady, Carolina, whose father happens to be one of the largest cattle farmers in Colombia. And we happened to be at a fundraising day, which is going back almost three years now, in London for a Canadian company got chatting to them and they expressed how keen they were to move into Colombia because of the climate to move out of Canada for growing cannabis. So Carl, my colleague, rang his father-in-law and uh, suggested to him that perhaps he'd give up some of his land to grow cannabis. And and you can imagine his reaction because the (laughs) the legacy of Colombia of the last 30 years is, you know, they want to put all that behind them. And so he slammed the phone down wasn't interested at all, but he's a very astute businessman and he did some research. He found out that the Colombian government were issuing all these licenses for medicinal cannabis. He saw the size of the potential market and it was literally a day later he was ringing us, up, us back and saying, how much land do you want? And so that, that's really how it started. And uh, from there, we started assembling a really top class team in Colombia Cause I was new to cannabis I'm sure like a lot of people tried it as a, a youngster but new to this industry so I was very aware of how to set up businesses and run businesses but what we needed around us was uh, top flight experts which is uh, what we went about doing in Colombia and another interesting story is a sort of local friend of my wife and I is Michael Page of the global recruitment company and um, mm-hmm. he sold the business some 15 years ago but he, he drinks in the local pub and I happened to ask him if he happened to have a, um, a recruitment company in Bogota in Colombia, and of course they did. It was very big, but not only that, they had a specialist division that was just focused on medicinal cannabis. So we worked with them and they found us um, some top quality skills, um, and from that we've we've not really looked back.
1: David, with criminal gangs and being so close to the Venezuelan border... How do you trust your workforce out there?
0: Yeah, no, it's it's a very, very interesting question because the culture in Colombia is very different in the different areas of the country. So a lot of our senior staff come from Bogota, which is in the centre of Colombia, the capital. They have a much more international outlook in terms of the way they approach business. Whereas our farm is up in a region called Cesar, which is up in the northeast and near the Caribbean coast, where... To put it mildly, it's a lot more laid back in terms of how they approach business. But we do have to be very careful. There is the legacy of uh, narcos, if you like, um, Mm -hmm. and the the drug barons in in Colombia. Some of it is still there down in the south. But the Colombian government have been excellent because they've put this rigorous licensing process in place with the intention that they want to become one of the largest producers of medicinal cannabis in the world and do it properly. So it's a very rigid regime so we have to employ a lot of security which is part of our license including three three meter high electric fence around our whole facility and 24 hour seven security because we are growing a narcotic but we also have to be very very careful in terms of who we recruit so we're, we're very lucky one of our first recruits we recruited a lieutenant colonel Um, called jose Harmes from the anti-narcotic squad of the colombian national police And, and this guy used to fly helicopter missions you know you know typical narcos if you've seen on television he's got amazing stories to tell but we took him on board and he looks after all our security and logistics and including recruiting people as well so we do have to be very careful and uh Funny enough, one of the things that we do do is uh, a lot of our recruits, particularly the local recruits that are going to be working on the facility, and it's pretty standard in Colombia, is uh, going through polygraph tests because we're very interested in their background. And Jose also spends time to actually go and visit their home, see where they live, because there is the danger that your facility can get infiltrated by you know, not only, it's not necessarily drug barons anymore, it's it's more being infiltrated by political factions, which are much smaller now, but s- still there. And all of that sort of, you stand back, sort of paints a bit of an awful picture. It's not at all, you know, I think that 99.99% of Colombians are just wonderful, wonderful people. And we love being there, love working there, love working with the population there, um, giving back where we can. But you just, have, you can't be complacent. No. You, you just have to put um, the processes in place to make sure that um, you uphold what you promise um, in the licensing.
1: It is. I mean, Colombia is the most incredible country. What proportion of the country is now farming cannabis?
0: There's quite a number of companies I- in Colombia now. We're probably one of the, the first British company out there. There's a small Jersey-based um, company down in the south. And a lot of them are in the Bogota Basin, which is near to the airport. We had um selection of different lands to look at. Um, we actually chose where we are, which is somewhere away from the capital and very remote. It's uh, right at the point where the Andes, the three ranges of the Andes, converge and finish. So we're in this beautiful valley bowl very protected but it's also very hot and very low humidity so it's absolutely perfect for what we want but in answer to your question a lot of the traditional farmers who are doing you know avocados or whatever it might be yeah uh, they now getting
1: them, into cannabis
0: well they have switched across but what you'll see is a lot of those you know they've applied for licenses but what you'll see is that they're they've become fairly passive because you know a lot of them thought that perhaps well it's just you know it's it's just a question of planting some cannabis and off you go whereas the medicinal cannabis market is very very stringent around its quality standards and therefore to have a cannabis facility involves a lot of money in terms of the facilities you need you know from greenhouses through to extraction plants so it is not like growing tomatoes or or avocados it is a very, cocaine. very, yeah, very, very <laughs> scientific. Yeah, quite.
1: Do you see the cocaine farmers moving into growing cannabis
0: at all? I've, I've not seen, or have not been made aware of, of much of that. I, I should think it's highly unlikely, given the licensing regime around it, which does control everything. You know, and it's not a laissez-faire market. It's rigorously controlled in terms of export quotas all the testing that you have to go through with the government, which can be, you know, quite tortuous, but is essential. You know, so for example, it took us eighteen months to get our licenses, all our licenses, including psychoactive license, which is controlled very tightly. And then it's taken another year to go through what's called the agronomic evaluation test. So you actually have to grow your crop and then process it in a laboratory and show the ministry the results that you're getting to show that you're not actually growing an illicit substance. You're actually growing what you applied for. So it's quite a lengthy process. So it does tend to keep just focus on those people that are very serious about doing this properly on a, on a global basis.
1: I think that's really important for the consumer that there is all this regulation.
0: I think it's hugely important. And if you look at the CBD market in the UK at the moment, it it is not regulated at the moment. It's a very vibrant market, but a lot of the things that you see on the high street or even on the web, it's very difficult to understand the provenance of that product and what's in it, where it came from, etc.
1: Do you see that being tightened up?
0: It is being tightened up. so in the UK and Europe, the Food Standards Agency and the European Food Standards Agency are now administering uh, CBD in the well-being market under a process called the Novel Foods Act. So you know everybody that wants to trade in CBD must have, um, Applied through the Novel Foods Act. And as part of that, you go through toxicology studies, safety studies, thorough analysis of exactly what's in the product, where it came from, et cetera, et cetera, which is only of benefit to the consumer.
1: Which is excellent news. David, the cannabis is grown hydroponically in purpose-built greenhouses. So for the listeners, that's as far as I'm aware, it's without the use of soil and using minimal water. But how kind is the Global with supporting the sort of sustainability side? And are you affecting climate change at all with what you're doing?
0: No, so we've we've tried to build our whole facility. It will eventually be carbon neutral in terms of what we do. So our greenhouses literally take no energy at all they've they've been designed around the environment that we are so if you like they exacerbate all the good things about the environment the heat the light the lack of humidity and they keep out all the nasty elements or the unwanted elements of the environment be it rain be it pests or cross-contamination but they're all naturally aerated with large cows on the top so we we take advantage of the winds where we are to basically ensure we have the almost the perfect environment inside the greenhouses and then the reason we chose to grow hydroponically is the cannabis plants you know just like the hemp plant which is the same family you know your listeners might know that a lot of farmers in the in the UK and globally actually often plant hemp as a rotation crop to clean out the ground oh, really? Uh, because it has such deep roots that it'll clear out all the pesticides and nasties in the soil so that you can then farm it and often they sort of burn it or get rid of it and then plant their next crop of wheat. And an interesting known fact is after the Chernobyl disaster, one of the things that the, was it the USSR at the time, the Ukraine, Ukrainian government, I can't remember, but what they did was planted acres and acres and acres of hemp all around the Chernobyl plants and what that did was soak up all the radioactivity in the ground and then they can farm it and and get rid of it. So cannabis will soak up whatever is in the environment or in the ground and we want to produce and harvest the perfect plant. We don't want that plant to have traces of heavy metals or pesticides in it. So we took the uh, decision to grow hydroponically. So we actually grow in a benign substance which is mashed up coconut shells which when mashed up actually looks like soil and gives the the form and structure so that the plants can root and take shape but it's completely benign so it's, it's just a form that they can grow in and then we have computer controlled irrigation and nutrients which feed the plants at exactly the right time of their growing cycle to give them all the nutrients that they need so fundamentally it's trying to control every single variable of the growing cycle such that when we harvest we know exactly what's in our plants they all look the same there's no nasties in them we've maximized the cannabinoids in them and maximised the quality and quantity of oil that you take from the flowers it is a complex plant to grow as well so you know there is no one strain
1: where's the best country to grow it would you say
0: um I'd, I would say equatorial countries are mm-hmm. the best place to grow, but you, you've got to take in a number of other factors as well because you need a lot of skill to grow it. And I think where we are in Colombia, we're very lucky because it's a, an equatorial country, so we're getting the twelve hours of sunshine a day that you need, you know, right throughout the year. But coupled with that, we've got a highly highly skilled workforce. So you know, we've got universities in Colombia now that are churning out graduates with degrees in agronomic engineering in medicinal cannabis wow which you're very unlikely to find anywhere else in the world so and uh, not only that the the labor force in in Colombia is you know compared to growing in other parts of the world is extremely cheap so not only have you got the perfect environment, but you've got very low costs as well and affordability. So
1: it's interesting that they're obviously going to add that because, I mean, the great push when I was using Colombian chocolate was we're a country of coffee and chocolate and to get rid of the stigma of, of the cocaine label. And now it sounds as if they're really sort of pumping up to add medicinal cannabis into that sort of export band.
0: Yeah, most definitely. And there's um, a number of big associations now, the Professional Cannabis Growers Association, which were are members of, which you know are working with both the governments and you know the financial institutions to move the industry forward. And it is a it's a very very professional setup. We're very lucky being in Colombia because we, being the the only English company in Colombia, we get a lot of support from the UK embassy in Bogota and the Department for International Trade. So they support us heavily, which is great. And But also there's um, a government organisation in Colombia called ProColumbia, which is a government quango. Yeah,
1: they're brilliant. I know them from my chocolate days.
0: Right, so they're, they're focused on investment into Colombia and exports out of Colombia. And we work incredibly closely with them. They've got an office in um uh, just off Oxford Circus in the UK, and clearly offices all over Colombia. So we work very, very closely with them. They're, they're very good to us. And, you know, for example, when we do investor presentations, we'll often get pro Colombia along to talk about the country and the economics of the country and the growth, because, you know, a lot of our investors have just watched Netflix and you know, Narcos on Netflix, and that's all they think about Colombia. And so we bring along pro Colombia, and completely changes people's view of what an invigorating country it is, you know, with some of the, well, probably the richest flora and fauna in the world.
1: Yeah, they've got the biggest bird collection in Colombia.
0: They have, yeah. And unfortunately, they've also got the most species of poisonous snakes as well. But
1: <laughs> I didn't think go I'd come across them. Mine was mainly cocoa and birds.
0: Well, we got one on the farm the other day. So we're building a big, um, what's called a supercritical CO2 extraction plant, which is a massive, great laboratory, you know, all to European, what's called GMP standards. And so lots of people are building this and it's nearly finished now. And but the other day, the contractors working on it um, sent us a photo, and they'd found the pit viper um, in there, which is probably about four foot long. This snake, but it's one of the most venomous snakes yeah. in, in Colombia. So, yeah, I mean, you talk about you know sustainability, etc. You know, we asked them, well, what did you do with it? You know, thinking that most British people would sort shoot of it didn't shoot <laughs> it or hit it with a brick or <laughs> run a mile, but, but they've got special these sort of long arm type metal poles that they pick it up with and, and all they do is take it down to the river and release it you know down there because it also feeds on lots of the pests that get we you know otherwise yes the sort it of is ecosystem out. isn't yeah it? yeah so you think oh wow that's incredible you know they they just don't you know unlike us they don't behave like this they you know they preserve the the, the cycle of life as it were
1: david how has covid affected colombia and also your business
0: I would be wrong to say that it hasn't affected us. Uh, it has, and it's probably delayed what we're doing and certainly delayed some of the fundraising we wanted to do as a lot of investors have been very worried about their mm-hmm. individual portfolios. But, you know, we've pressed ahead and we've had compensation from the government because we're considered to be agriculture that we could continue on the farm. And and where we are in a place called La Howard at Ibirico, we're, we're also very friendly with the army and the police. And they want to preserve our business and ensure it prospers because it's very beneficial for the local people and the local towns. So during the early days of COVID, they were acting as uh, drivers and logistics for us. They were bringing equipment to and from um, the facility for us. And so it it made it very easy. And we've just got a wonderful workforce that uh, just continued. We put in place a very, very rigorous COVID procedures and people coming into the facility and leaving the facility but to be quite honest that goes hand in hand with all the hygienic facilities we have anyway because we've set the whole thing up a bit like um what's very similar to how a pharmaceutical company would so it's very easy to be covid friendly but one thing we did do uh, one thing we have done is set up a foundation a charitable foundation in Colombia, in order to give back to the community And we were always, uh, well, we look at giving back in the area of local enterprise, the environment, education and arts and culture. And when we're up and running and fully going, we'll be reserving a percentage of our profits to go into that. But in these early days of COVID, particularly last year, our local town was locked down. They suffered quite badly from COVID. And when lockdowns happen in Colombia, it's not like in the UK. The Colombians are professional at curfews. Mm very very good at it so it is locked down and there were a lot of people a lot of families in Lahore that were unable to work because they couldn't travel so a lot of people suffered so we've done a number of food parcels for the town which is you know the little that we can do um we did a big collection through our shareholders and management and and other people and um were able to de- deliver over 4 tons of food in wow, that's two, two parcels to and we did it through the mayor's office in lahawa you know and delivering to very needy local families and then at christmas we did a very similar thing so the colombians celebrate christmas as though it's going out of fashion yeah. <laughs> So Christmas starts on about the 10th of October and finishes at about February sometime. And so it's very, very big, particularly with the children. So at Christmas, we did another collection and went and then bought lots of children's toys. And then in a, one of the local schools in Lahawa had their equivalent Santa Claus and um, and then gave out a lot of these toys to local children.
1: What do you think has tested you most so far with the business?
0: I think it is working cross boundaries across the Atlantic and and having you know, COVID has meant I can't travel there or our team can't travel there. So pre COVID two thousand and nineteen I did ten long trips to Colombia two thousand and twenty. I got back from Colombia at the end of January two thousand and twenty and then pretty much after that we were locked down. So haven't been back there for over a year. So, you know, the biggest challenge has been doing everything remotely Mm -hmm. and we've got a big team out there now of 40 50 people and you know they're wonderful wonderful people but it's very difficult to manage a team remotely and you know and build that esprit de corps and sense of vision and we're we're all in this together and you know I suppose the danger is that we become two teams in terms of the UK team and the Colombian team and that's probably been you know is our biggest challenge and as soon as lockdown is over and we can travel again we've we've taken on quite a number of people in the UK and they've absolutely no idea really what the facility looks like you know apart from photographs and videos that they've seen and when you actually get out there and just experience the beauty of where we are and the vastness of it um, it is is quite overwhelming so it has been difficult to get across that but we've managed you know it, like everybody
1: else and we're nearly there that's we the exciting thing there, so. more of us are going to be jabbed out. I mean that's the thing with Colombia is that it is the most incredible country and yes it's edgy and I had a couple of edgy experiences on both trips but the rewards it's just absolutely beautiful slightly challenging infrastructure to move around yeah. but just unbelievable and where you are i didn't i went to necacly so northwest near the sort of panama borders but i mean absolutely stunning really stunning
0: i mean we had a wonderful evening with the colonel of the um the the military who invited us there was three of us that were over there invited us to this i suppose you'd call it a country club i mean it's a very very poor village where we are town where we are it's you know it's not particularly affluent but uh, you know there's this sort of you know country club sounds grand it's not it's just a hacienda blah, blah, blah. invited us there and there were loads of locals there which was fantastic just to meet them all and a lot of them don't speak english you know our spanish is very poor so we had interpreters but the local music is called bayanata. so it's uh, an accordion player a drummer and a singer and the songs also tell the always tell these very very long stories um and of course there's the dancing that goes with it and um, I can't remember the name of the whiskey that they absolutely love, this Scottish whiskey. In fact, you can't get it in Scotland at all. It's it's made in (laughs) in Columbia (laughs) Then they love it. And of course, you know, this comes out and everybody has to toast and and then everyone starts getting out their instruments and, you know, all these people are just brilliant musicians and dancers and everyone takes turns to get up and sing and, and it was a wonderful evening. One of the things that we want to do is um, there's a local Bayonata festival, which was going to be hosted in Lahawa this year. I'm not sure when it's now going to happen because of COVID, but we were going to sponsor the local Bayonata festival where you get all these fantastic bands from all over the region who come. And I mean, some of these accordion players are just fantastic.
1: Yeah, incredible. David, what skills do you need to be at the helm of the business?
0: Again, very good question. I, I think bravery. You know, this is very much a pioneering business uh, ability to learn. I have learned so much in the last three years about this incredible plant and the marketplace. I'm still not an expert by any means, but you know, it is the knowledge of being able to set up and run a business, but also run a business on along international lines where you get very, very different cultures, and it's being able to you know have the ability to. You know manage those cultures then somewhere like Colombia it's, it's very egalitarian in terms of how things are done and very flat structures you know it's not the command and control that you'd necessarily see in a typical UK company so you know setting up the right structures and the right teams and people and literally let them get on with it within the strategic objectives that we've set. so mm-hmm. you know it is all about having a fantastic team ultimately and we've got we're very lucky to have that.
1: You've got a very, as I was saying in the intro, very impressive board. Who would you say, or what would you say, has been the greatest influence? It can be in the business or in your life.
0: I suppose a lot of people talk, you know, when they, they talk about sort of inspirational business figures, et cetera. But, you know, I suppose my inspiration does come more from music and some of the people, things that people do in music that's, you know, pushing the boundaries and being very, you know, incredibly creative. And, you know, and I've I've said this before. One of people that has inspired me is a great friend of mine, who's an opera conductor.
1: Oh wow! You
0: know, he conducts at the English National Opera, he conducts at Frankfurt Opera, and some very very high profile conducting. And you know, he is always conducting world class musicians who are you know far better than he is on you know their particular instruments. But he has this skill of being able to bring you know, sometimes 120 musicians together in a large symphony orchestra or an opera orchestra and all the prima donnas, the singers, etc., and bring them together to, you know, as one voice. And that's an incredible skill. And, you know, I used to sit in wine bars with him and say, well, how would you do that? Um, he used to say to me you know, when I was on the board at Capgemini, "Well, how do you do what you do? You stand up in front of thousands of people and give presentations, etc." And, and I suppose I learned a lot f- from him. Or just taking those analogies of running a really good business like this—this business—is is just like an orchestra. You know, everybody plays their part. Everybody is brilliant on their instrument in their own right, but you've got to get it singing as as one voice and playing together as a team.
1: What would you say that you've learned most about yourself?
0: Adaptability. I never thought, if, you know, I'd been talking to you four years ago that I'd be, uh, um, as my friends call it, international drug law. <laughs> <laughs> I'm known as Don David locally. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, I think it's just the, it, it's been a real challenge what we're doing and, and still is, you know, there's many challenges to overcome and... Yeah, you learn a a lot about yourself in terms of, you know, perseverance and tenacity to to get this done. You know, it involves many, many sleepless nights and, you know, COVID doesn't help because you can't be there and it's 6,000 miles away or even more.
1: So a lot of trust.
0: Yeah, and I've had to learn a, a lot of, you know, personal resilience with doing what we're doing.
1: How do you cope out of your comfort zone? How do you cope with things like uncertainty?
0: I I suppose, well, I I quite enjoy uncertainty. I don't like predictability. Um, I quite like uncertainty in, in life because it offers challenge and opportunity and excitement. So, in my personal life and my professional life, I'm quite happy with dealing with uncertainty and, you know, completely different from my wife, Lena, who just loves to have everything clear and, and mapped out. And, and if it veers off um <laughs> finds it very, very difficult to, to deal with, you know, that's not in the plan. You know, whereas, you know, I'm quite comfortable with, you know, stuff going, I'm a lousy skier, by the way, but um, with stuff, you know, going off piece, as it were.
1: Do you ever have that sort of inner critic where it chats away at you in a negative monologue? All the time, and how do you cope with it?
0: I think it's well a lot of inner resilience and you know confidence. But you know, I'm not particularly a self confident person. I think you know most people outwardly have a lot of bravado. whatever the word is? Bravado. um, Bravado. Bravado? Thank you. Yeah, but (laughs) you know, inwardly are are quite self conscious, and I'm no different. So often plagued by self-doubt but you you've got to have confidence in what you're doing but but it also I thrive on feedback from other people which is you know not always positive but when it is positive it really does help you know and likewise I try and give feedback to people as well
1: the analogy where you were sort of saying is that oh, people having bravado on the outside and inside makes me think of a card that I once saw in a shop where there's a swan and the swan looks really serene on the top of the pond, but actually is peddling really fast with the feet underneath. It's, exactly. It, yeah, I mean, I, I think so many of us have that. So on to the quick fire round, David. Optimist or pessimist? Optimist. Introvert, extrovert, ambivert.
0: I'm definitely an ambivert.
1: Perfectionist or non-perfectionist?
0: Uh, I'd like to say perfectionist, but I'm I'm very much a starter, not a finisher, and I'm also very focused on pragmatism. And pragmatism does not always mean perfection; it means whatever is appropriate. So I'd probably say I'm a not a perfectionist.
1: Why do you um, start and not finish things? Do you know,
0: I like the creative element of creating things, ideas, and then not so motivated by the regular day-to-day...
1: Maintenance. Um,
0: maintenance.
1: <laughs> Early bird or night owl?
0: More a night owl, but I must admit, during COVID, it's been tucking uh, myself into bed with Barack Obama. Um, <laughs> Barack Obama's book, that is. But, yeah, normally a night owl, although I work better in the morning.
1: Yeah, I thought you were going to say night owl because of your music Okay, we're going to tuck into the chocolate break. Now, we are not actually having CBD chocolate that I have tried, but we are having two chocolate choices. So we're tucking into a feast. We have got Maltesers and Minstrels. So, David, tell the listeners why we have Maltesers and Minstrels to tuck into.
0: (laughs) So my wife is a big chocolate lover and... She loves getting very high-quality chocolates, etc. But, you know, at the end of the day, I just love a Maltese or a minstrel and mix together are just fantastic. And, well, the textures uh, it makes,
1: are really interesting, aren't
0: they? I know. Well, they're brilliant, and it makes such a good pudding as well. Really cheap skate pudding. Just s'mores, Maltese minstrels in a bowl. Absolutely, a bowl <laughs> on the table and a n- nice nice bottle of Montepontiano, and um, I'm in heaven.
1: <laughs> I, what I discovered was that Malteses, they are quite sexist. They were designed for women because of the centre that weighs so little, but actually it's kind yeah. of a farce because they've got the same calories in as as anything else, but
0: yeah, but think of all those fantastic party tricks and Maltesers, though.
1: I know. New back Year's in the Eve, etc. Yeah. <laughs> okay, no resting up for you, David. Would you share with the listeners your thoughts on the words success and failure and what they mean to you?
0: Yeah, failure. I think uh, for me is is something to learn from. You know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, I think you've got to fail many times in order to be successful and and learn from that and I, you know i don't think the two things are you know particularly binary in you know it's either success or failure there's a, a blend in between and su- success for me is 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 not about personal success it's about idea success and team success that's you know we all achieve and succeed together
1: i love asking my guests that because it's so interesting everybody has a slightly different take on it we're moving into the well-being zone, David. And mm-hmm. what I'd like to ask you is how important it is incorporating well-being into your day, and do you manage to achieve it?
0: I try. So my wife was a ran a recruitment business and for the last three years has been retraining as a nutritionist, or, as I like to call it, a food Nazi, um, <laughs> which means that you know we do try and eat healthily, you know apart from my Maltesers and minstrels. And and also keeping fit is important as well. So I swim, I run, play tennis, which you know is all part of the sort of endorphin system. And you know, particularly if you're stressed, doing physical exercise is a great way to get rid of it. You know, so it's, it's either a binary choice of open a bottle of wine or go for a run. You know, unfortunately, the wine often wins. But um, <laughs> um, and you know, the other thing is uh, for peace of mind for me is is playing the piano. So I'm lucky to have a big six foot one ground piano oh, at how home heavenly. and, um, you know, just sit down in the evening and play the piano for an hour and nothing else seems, you know, all the stresses and woes don't seem that important. And, you know, it puts a sort of relative perspective on it.
1: What's your favourite music that you like playing?
0: Well, jazz is... My, you know, the kids hate it, but my favourite, I mean, I like everything. So I love opera. I love classical, you know, I'm absolutely eclectic. But in terms of what I do, it is it is playing jazz. I absolutely love it.
1: I think playing the piano is so incredible. I used to play the piano. My brother is a brilliant pianist, but I now can't read music. So that's one of my things before I get too ancient is to get back into reading music. Have you changed the way that you look after yourself over the years?
0: Yeah, I th- I think so. You know, as you get older you become more aware that, you know, your body's wearing out and you've got to make more of an effort. You know, and you can't burn the candle at both ends, much as I like doing that. The hangovers these days would kill a horse, you know. <laughs> so you you do have to be careful, I think, and, and very cognizant around what you eat and exercise and, and you know, most importantly for me is the sort of mental well being as well, and getting a balance in in what you're doing particularly, you know, this role at the moment is so all-encompassing. I mean, literally could be doing it 24 hours a day, Mm -hmm. sleeping it. Um, You have to have other outlets.
1: So what would you say triggers your stress and how does it affect you physically, mentally, spiritually?
0: Stress for me is, I think, two things, something that is outside of my control that I know is going to have some sort of impact on other people or, you know, have a negative impact and, you know, I not being able to control that, um, that's what makes me feel stressed.
1: How do you cope with that?
0: I suppose if, you know, if you can't do anything about it and you can't influence it, then, you know, why worry about it too much because, you know, as long as you've done everything in your power to control something or manage something in the right way, if it's ultimately out of your control, then... You know, you just have to accept. Uh, you know, this probably would have happened to anybody.
1: Do you have your phone on or off when you go to sleep?
0: I leave it downstairs, so it's char- it's charging. So I mean, it's on, but I, <laughs> it's I revving up
1: it. for the day, the next day. Yeah.
0: No, I, I I purposely take it, leave it downstairs, and um, you know, I'd rather rather read a book.
1: Do you ever have problems with your sleep?
0: Uh, my wife has a problem with my sleep. In terms of, <laughs> particularly after the Maltesers and you know I was gonna say is that a snoring (laughs) (laughs) but
1: But you sleep you don't wake up worrying and stuff like
0: that well yeah sometimes I I mean everybody does but um I seem to be famous amongst my friends around the ability to sleep anytime anywhere and um, martini yeah so for a recent recent big birthday a lot of them cobbled together and bought me a um, or made up a book of all these photos called the book of David which is um, (laughs) pictures of me asleep um, throughout the world in different (laughs) bars (laughs) and um, I mean a lot of it was made up but they thought it was absolutely hilarious (laughs) so no I don't have a problem with sleep clearly.
1: What music makes you feel good and also what book would you miss if it wasn't on your bookshelf?
0: So, uh, what music makes me feel absolutely fantastic is probably at the end of the day it's probably opera. Yeah, you know, it sort of breaks me apart listening to Verdi or Puccini. And in terms of what book, mm-hmm. I just have well, read it three times, four times now. Is well, two lots actually Dance to a Music of Time by Anthony Powell, which is twelve books in fact. And then a book by William Boyd called Any Human Heart, which is just oh, fantastic.
1: Yes, he's such an amazing writer.
0: No, he's, he's my favourite author. In fact, I've got his latest book, Sitting by My Bed, as soon as I've uh, finished with Barrack. He's
1: he's amazing. So, David, what advice would you give to anyone who's looking to set up their own business or having challenges at the moment with keeping their business on the road?
0: Well, be absolutely clear on your purpose have confidence in yourself don't follow foolish ideas you know take on advice but ultimately back yourself if you won't back yourself no one else will
1: very wise words so finally david where have you had to have hope and patience in your life or business
0: so certainly patience with some of the licensing in Colombia. it just takes so long so you know if you thought we were bureaucratic here the amount of form filling and things so we've had to have patience because whatever time you thought it was con- going to take you can you can double that and and hope can be a positive thing but also a foolish thing as well you know hoping for something that's just not going to happen but mm-hmm. you know it it is hope in the outcome of this business that we're we're setting up i have to have hope in the team hope in the all the quality that we've put in place, that um, it will succeed and it will.
1: Well, it's certainly going in the right direction. Is your aim to float it, would you say?
0: Eventually, it'll either be floated or a trade sale as the industry the industry will consolidate. You know, but for now, we're having a lot of fun in terms of building this business and, and making it a success for everybody involved.
1: When I next go to Colombia, I am definitely going to be asking to to have a visit. So, David, as far as I understand, our listeners can't buy the CBD oil from you. So, how can they keep up to speed with what you're up to, the company, and potentially buy products that have got your CBD oil in them?
0: Well, we've got a website which is www.avidaglobal.com, and we will post updates on there in terms of what we're up to around the world and, you know, who's working with us in terms of end product that they can can buy.
1: I would love to say a huge thank you, David, for spending your valuable time with us today. It has been brilliant. I would love to chat to you about Columbia for hours and hours and hours, but thank you, thank you so much.
0: No, thank you, Amelia, and um, lovely to meet you.
1: Anyway, before I go, it's time for my podcast recommendation and quote for this episode. The podcast is Fear Itself, hosted by Cressida Bonus. Her podcast invites guests who share their personal stories around fear. And guests have included Ellie Goulding, Matt Haig, Dr. Pippa Grange and Elizabeth Day. It's really emotive and it's one of my faves to listen to. And the quote is, What matters in life is not what happens to you, but what you remember and how you remember it. Gabriel Garcia Marquez. A huge thank you for finding the show. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Don't forget to subscribe to get the latest episode. And if you're enjoying the show, it would be truly fab if you could rate and review it, or better still, share it with folk who might value a gem or two. Any book recommendations, Podcasts. Quote songs can be found in the show notes and on the website too. Until the next time, however tough these times get, keep that very special inner sparkle you have shining.
0: Hope and patience with Amelia Rope. Join the conversation at hopeandpatience.co.uk. Find Amelia on Facebook at Hope and Patience or on Twitter and Instagram at Amelia underscore rope.